You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 10 from the lecture cycle by Rudolf Steiner entitled, According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity. In our last few sessions, we learned that the significant contribution of the Christ being to human evolution lay in gradually equipping the human eye with faculties previously attained only in the mysteries and only by suppressing the eye to a certain degree. Let's review this once more. All ancient forms of initiation enabled initiates to ascend into the spiritual world, to the, quote, kingdoms of the heavens, unquote. Owing to idiosyncrasies of human development before Christ, however, ancient initiates could not ascend while preserving the human eye itself as it exists on the physical sensory plane. We distinguished between two states of human consciousness. One is the state normal people experience today while awake, in which the eye perceives sensory objects of the physical plane. In the second state, the eye is suppressed and we are not clearly self-aware. In this condition, individuals ascended into the heavenly kingdoms of the ancient mysteries. According to the sermons of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist, and of Christ Jesus himself, those kingdoms will descend to us and provide the impetus for a new step in human evolution, the possibility of experiencing higher worlds while the eye maintains its normal strength. Naturally, therefore, accounts of the Christ event repeat all the rites and procedures of ancient mystery initiation, but with a new refinement, the presence of a fully conscious eye. Yesterday I described the nine Beatitudes from this perspective. Today we will look at the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount as it appears in the present version of Matthew, which is based on an imprecise translation from Aramaic into Greek. Even in the Greek version of the text, however, the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount clearly points to earlier initiation experiences in which the eye was suppressed and suggests that in the future we will learn to experience the spiritual world with the eye fully present. The terms used in the Sermon on the Mount show that Christ Jesus considered himself the bearer of eye consciousness on a higher level than was possible previously. At this level the eye is capable of experiencing the kingdoms of heaven within itself. This is why the Christ repeatedly contrasted earlier revelations of the heavenly kingdoms with what we will experience both now and in the future when we allow the personal I to speak to us. Hence the repeated phrase, quote, Truly I say to you, unquote. Christ Jesus felt himself to be the representative of the human soul, quote, I who am present in full I consciousness, I say this to you, unquote. We must take it seriously when the Christ says, quote, truly I say to you, unquote, as he does throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This phrase signals the new impulse that Christ injected into human evolution. If you keep this interpretation in mind as you read the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, you will sense what he meant. 
Previously we were not allowed to appeal to the personal I, but because of what the Christ offers, we can learn to make the kingdoms of heaven our own through the forces of the individual I. The new impulse of the human I pervades the entire Sermon on the Mount, as well the transitions to the so-called healings that follow it. As you know, biblical healings have been the subject of a tremendous amount of discussion. Let's look more closely at their miraculous aspect, which is frequently emphasized. Yesterday I pointed out that we tend to greatly underestimate how much the human constitution has changed in the course of evolution. If we could compare a physical human body from the time of Christ, or even earlier, with a modern physical body, we would discover significant differences, although they cannot be confirmed by gross anatomical means, but only through the subtler and more detailed methods of esoteric research. We would find that the physical body has become denser and more contracted. In the time of Christ, the physical body was more malleable, and because human perception could still recognize certain forces that shaped the body, muscles appeared much stronger and more evident, at least to a more esoteric view. This perception was gradually lost, and now the extreme muscle definition typical of ancient drawings is generally attributed to exaggeration and lack of skill on the part of the artists. In reality, however, art historians are naively unaware that this phenomenon is based on a mode of observation that was appropriate in ancient times but not suited for today. For our purposes, however, this particular phenomenon is less important than other aspects of those bodies that were constituted so differently. In those days, before the body became denser and the soul's power over it decreased, soul and spirit forces exerted a much greater and more immediate influence on the human body. Healings that originated in the soul were much more possible than then than they are now. When disorder prevailed in the body, the soul was better able to restore harmony and order by imbuing the body with healing forces from the spirit world. As evolution progressed, the soul gradually lost this power over the body. In ancient times, healing processes were much more likely to be spiritual processes, and physicians then were not modern physicians of the body. To a large extent, they influenced the body indirectly through the soul. They purified the sick person's soul by applying the influences of soul and spirit, either in an ordinary state of physical perception or in so-called temple sleep which was simply a way of inducing clairvoyance. Such healers imbued the patient's soul with healthy sensations, impulses, and forces of will. When we consider the cultural situation of those ancient times, we must emphasize that strong souls could apply what they themselves had been given, and in this way they could strongly influence other people's bodies by way of their souls. The term healer was used to describe those imbued with spirit and known for radiating healing forces. In this sense, both the Therapeuti and the Essenes would have been called healers. Furthermore, in one Middle Eastern dialect widely used among the foreigners of Christianity, the word Jesus meant spiritual healer or spiritual physician. This translation is quite accurate, especially if we consider its emotional connotations. This example suggests how names were experienced when they still aroused specific emotions. If we immerse ourselves completely in the culture of those times, we can describe the situation as follows. 
by sacrificing their eye consciousness in certain ways, those with access to the mysteries became healers by contacting specific soul spiritual forces, which then radiated healing effects. Suppose that some of these healers became disciples of Christ Jesus. They might have said, quote, We have experienced a remarkable event. In the past, only those who received spiritual forces in the mysteries by suppressing their eye-being were able to become soul healers. But we have now experienced someone who heals without having undergone initiation rites or suppressing the eye, unquote. To such people, there would have been nothing especially remarkable about either spiritual healings as such or the gospel's account of a particular spiritual healer. They would have said, quote, What's so miraculous about spiritual healing? It's quite normal, unquote. Significantly, however, Matthew tells of someone who brought new strength of being to humankind, whose healings flowed from eye forces that in the past could not be used for that purpose. Thus the true meaning of gospel accounts is quite different from their usual interpretation. Let's consider one example of the many historical proofs that confirm the accuracy of these spiritual scientific discoveries. If what I just said is true, the people of antiquity must have known that under certain circumstances spiritual influences could heal the blind. And in fact ancient paintings do depict such events. John M. Robertson's book, which I mentioned in the previous lecture, also tells of a painting in Rome that shows Esculapius standing before two blind people. Robertson concluded, of course, that the scene represented a healing later included in the Gospels. The important point, however, is not that spiritual healings were miraculous, but that the painter intended to portray Esculapius as an initiate who acquired spiritual forces of healing in the mysteries by suppressing eye consciousness. In contrast, Matthew points out that rather than performing healings in the old way, Christ bore a unique impulse that will gradually be acquired by all human beings and will become accessible to the forces of the individual eye. At the beginning of the Christian era, the Christ was the first to manifest an impulse that is still not available to everyone but will be in the distant future. Gradually all human beings will learn to express this impulse. That is what the miraculous healings of Matthew are meant to convey. From the perspective of esoteric consciousness, therefore, Matthew's intention was not to describe miracles, in quotes. Such healings were quite natural and a, ma and a matter of course at that time, and the evangelist simply wanted to point out that they were occurring in a new and different way. This becomes obvious when we describe these events in a truly scientific and conscientious way. As you see, the Gospels have been profoundly misunderstood. What is the true situation? And how must the story continue? We saw that the so-called temptation of Christ was really a descent into all the processes experienced in the physical and etheric bodies during initiation. We also saw how the strength that flows from the physical and etheric bodies worked in the Sermon on the Mount and in subsequent healings. Before that, right after the temptation, the power of Christ Jesus had the same effect as that of mystery initiates. It drew disciples to him. But here, too, a different nuance is evident in the way he attracted his disciples. To understand Matthew's narrative following the healings and the Sermon on the Mount, we must recall certain esoteric facts we have learned over the years. 
For example, those who truly follow the path of initiation into higher worlds acquire imaginative perception. The followers of Christ Jesus had to do more than merely hear his majestic pronouncements, such as the Sermon on the Mount, or witness the healings he performed. Gradually the mighty forces that worked within him had to be transmitted to his closest friends and disciples. After the temptation, the Gospel first describes how the Christ presented a new and different variation on ancient teachings, applying a new impulse to traditional healing. Then we see how he influenced his disciples in a new way. The strength that he had incorporated to the utmost affected everything around his disciples. How does Matthew describe its influence? Unreceptive individuals experienced only the words Christ used to express his teachings, but he had a different effect on the receptive few whom he had selected to teach. These individuals received impressions in the imagination, that is, the next highest level of cognition was stimulated in them. What emanated from Christ Jesus therefore worked in two ways. Outsiders heard and received his words on a theoretical level, but other souls had been chosen to share in his power because of their particular karma, and they received imaginative cognition that led them a step higher into the spiritual worlds. This is the meaning of Matthew 13.11. Outsiders hear only parables, figurative expressions of events in the spiritual world. The chosen disciples, on the other hand, hear the true meaning of those parables. The language they hear guides them to higher worlds. This is another passage in Matthew that we must not interpret on a trivial level. Let's delve more deeply into the way Christ guided his disciples into higher worlds. To understand what I have to say about further accounts in Matthew, you will not only need to listen attentively, but you will also need a combination of goodwill and spiritual scientific insights you have acquired. Let's recall the two aspects of initiation. The first involves descending into the physical and etheric bodies and learning to understand the inner forces that shape the human being. The second involves flowing out into the macrocosm of the spiritual world. You know that, in reality, this second process occurs every time we fall asleep, although we are not conscious of it. Each of us extracts the astral body and eye from the physical and etheric bodies and they pour out into the cosmos to absorb the forces of the starry world. Hence the name astral body. Through this initiation we not only survey and comprehend everything on earth, but we also flow out into the cosmos. We become familiar with the world of the stars and absorb its forces. Because of Christ's unique constitution, this experience was entirely available to him after the baptism in the Jordan, even when he was not sleeping and was fully present in his physical and etheric bodies. He was able to unite his being with the forces of the starry world and transmit them to the physical world. In other words, the specially prepared physical and etheric bodies, and indeed the entire being of Christ, attracted the forces of the sun, moon, stars, in fact, the forces of our entire solar system. In all of his activity, he transmitted the healthy, strengthening life of the cosmos, which also pervades us when we leave our physical and etheric bodies during sleep. The body of Christ Jesus attracted cosmic forces and transmitted them to his disciples, whose receptivity allowed him to transmit the spiritual nourishment of cosmic forces to them. 
The disciples, however, had not undergone the ultimate human development themselves, and therefore raised themselves only one level through their association with Christ. They remained in alternating states of consciousness comparable to ordinary waking and sleeping, but those states did allow them to experience the influence of the Christ's magical power, both by day and at night. Ordinarily human beings flow out into the world of stars unconsciously and know nothing of the process, but because the disciples were accompanied by the power of the Christ, they began to be aware of flowing out, and they knew that it gave them nourishment from the world of stars. There is yet another aspect to the disciples' twofold consciousness. In any human individual, even a disciple of Christ, Jesus, we must consider not only what the person is now, but also his or her dormant potential, which will not mature until future incarnations. In future cultural epochs, an element that now lies dormant within you will perceive the world very differently. If this element were to become clairvoyant, it would perceive the immediate future. Events of the near future are among the first perceptions of any clairvoyance that is pure, authentic, and honest. This was especially true of the disciples. In their normal waking consciousness, the power of the Christ flowed into them. During sleep, however, because they were the Christ's disciples and his power had influenced them, they became clairvoyant at certain times and perceived future events. They dove into the sea of astral perception, so to speak, and foresaw what would happen in the future. Thus the disciples experienced two states of consciousness. In their daily waking consciousness, the Christ supplied them with the spiritual nourishment of forces from the great expanses of the cosmos. The Christ, as the power of the sun, brought the teachings of Zarathustra to them all, and those were absorbed into Christianity. Christ transmitted the forces that emanate from the sun as it moves through the seven zodiac constellations belonging to the day. These signs were a source of nourishment for the disciples during the day. At night, however, the disciples perceived how the nocturnal sun, the invisible sun that passes through the five constella constellations of the night, sent heavenly nourishment into their souls through the power of Christ. In their imaginative clairvoyance, therefore, the disciples sensed their connection to Christ's solar forces, which provided them with what was appropriate for those of the fourth cultural era. In their other state of consciousness, Christ's nocturnal solar powers flowed into them from the five nighttime constellations of the zodiac. This aspect of Christ's power, however, is related to the next, fifth cultural period. How does Matthew express the disciples' experience? In our next session we will devote a few words to the names given to it, but for now let me just mention the following points. In ancient times any large number of people was described as a thousand, and more specific descriptions added a number derived from the most important characteristic of the group. For example, the people of the fourth cultural period were described as the fourth thousand, while those already living in the style of the next cultural period were called the fifth thousand. These are merely technical terms. Hence the disciples realized that in their waking consciousness they received Christ's solar forces through the seven diurnal signs of the zodiac, which provided nourishment suited to the fourth thousand, or those in the fourth cultural period.
But what they received through clairvoyant imagination or through the five nocturnal signs applied to the near future, the fifth thousand. Thus those of the fourth epoch, the four thousand, received nourishment from heaven through the seven diurnal constellations, or the seven heavenly loaves, whereas the five loaves of the five nocturnal constellations of the zodiac nourishes those of the fifth epoch, the five thousand. The constellation of Pisces, or the fishes, always indicates the point where day signs meet the night signs. Here we touch on the important mystery process of the Christ's magical communion with the disciples. The Christ makes it clear to them that he is not speaking of the Pharisees' old leaven, in quotes. Although he has only seven loaves of bread or seven diurnal constellations, and in the other instance five loaves or constellations of the night, Christ provides heavenly food through cosmic solar forces. The constellation of Pisces stands between day and night, and Matthew clearly mentions two fishes, Matthew 14.13-21 and 15.32-38. We can no longer doubt that in Matthew's Excuse me, read that again. We can no longer doubt that in Matthew's great depths we encounter the fulfillment of a process that began with Zarathustra. Zarathustra was the first to show his contemporaries the spirit of the sun. He was one of the first missionaries to explain the two receptive hearts and minds the magical power of the sun, which was slowly descending to earth. Sun, S-U-N. When careless biblical commentators discover a passage in Matthew that describes how 4,000 people were fed with seven loaves of bread and another where 5,000 are fed with five loaves, they interpret the second passage as a mere repetition of the first and attribute it to sloppy copying. I do not doubt that such sloppy mistakes occur in modern books, but the Gospels were not written in this way. It is deeply meaningful when a similar account appears twice in the Gospels. If we want to truly understand Matthew, we must look for such profundities, because this gospel draws on the profound teachings of the great Essene leader, Jeshu ben Pandira. He prepared the way for an understanding of the Christic Son one hundred years before the Christ's appearance on earth. Matthew clearly indicates that the Christ initially allowed the power of imaginative astral perception to radiate from his own being into the disciples. At that time, when not everything was written down, people were alerted by the words, quote, If you have the ears to hear, then hear. Unquote. Today we might say, quote, If you have the eyes to read, then read. Unquote. If you have the eyes to read, then read the Gospels. Do they suggest that the power of the Christ Son appeared to the disciples differently during the day than at night? In fact, they do. In an important passage, Matthew 14, 25-26, the disciples, awakening from sleep, perceived a figure, which they initially assumed was a ghost, walking on the lake during the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m. In fact, that ghost was the nocturnal power of the sun shining through the Christ. We are told the time of day because only at specific times could the disciples become aware of the forces streaming toward them from the cosmos through Christ. Christ's travels in Palestine allowed the power of the sun to work into the earth. This is suggested whenever the Gospels mention the time of day, that is, the sun's location in relationship to the zodiacal constellations, or, quote, bread of heaven, unquote. What the Gospels really describe is cosmic forces working through Christ.
Furthermore, the Christ Jesus initiated his disciples, or at least those especially suited to this particular type of initiation, so they could perceive and hear events in the spiritual world, either directly or in imaginative astral images. This initiation, which we have often called the ascent into the Devakan, allowed the disciples to seek the being of Christ, whom they saw on the physical plane in the person of Jesus, in spiritual worlds. This step, which required clairvoyant perception of regions higher than the astral plane, was not possible for all of the disciples, but only for the three who were most perceptive to the force radiating from the Christ. According to Matthew, these were Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 17, 1-13, we are told that the Christ led these three disciples above the astral plane to the Devakan, where they beheld three archetypal spiritual figures, <clears throat> the Christ himself and two related beings. One of them was the ancient prophet Elijah, who had reincarnated as John the Baptist to proclaim the coming of the Christ. This scene took place after John had been beheaded and returned to the spiritual world. The second was the Christ's spiritual forerunner, Moses. To perceive these figures, the three chosen disciples had to achieve spiritual rather than merely astral perception. Matthew indicates that, indeed, they did ascend to the Devakan. He emphasizes that, in addition to seeing the Christ in his solar power, the Gospel expressly says, quote, and his face shone like the sun, unquote, the disciples also heard the three figures conversing. All this is reported with great accuracy, just as spiritual scientific research describes the spiritual world. Nowhere in Matthew do we find anything that contradicts what we learn from spiritual science. The Christ had to personally guide the disciples first into the astral realm and then into the Devakan, or spirit realm. <clears throat> Thus Matthew clearly depicts the Christ as the vehicle of the for solar forces once proclaimed by Zarathustra. This gospel faithfully describes how the spirit of the sun, whom Zarathustra called Ahura Mazda and described as dwelling in the sun, was able to live on earth through the mediation of Jesus of Nazareth. By incarnating once only in a physical, etheric, and astral body, this solar spirit gradually began to pervade earthly evolution as a new impulse. This unique incarnation will enable human beings in future incarnations to gradually acquire the forces of the I by participating in the Christ, by receiving the Christ being as Paul did. As we move from incarnation to incarnation through the rest of earthly existence, those who choose to fill their souls with the power of that unique being will rise to ever greater heights. At the time of Christ, certain individuals were chosen to physically perceive him in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Once and once only in the course of the earth's evolution, the Christ, formerly visible only as the Spirit of the Son, had to descend to earth and unite with its forces for the sake of all humankind. The human race was chosen to receive the full flood of power from the Son, S-U-N, which was destined to incarnate only once in a physical body. This marked the beginning of an age when the power of the sun will be poured out over all. Gradually and increasingly, this power will flow into individuals as they move from incarnation to incarnation, filling themselves with the power of Christ to the degree their earthly bodies allow. 
Not every physical body will permit it, however, as is suggested by the fact that the fullness of the Christ being required a very specific body prepared through a unique and complicated process by the two Jesus figures and raised to the highest possible level by Zarathustra. Those who heed the call will imbue themselves with the power of Christ, first inwardly and then in increasingly outward ways. In the future we will not only understand the Christ, but imbue ourselves with his being. Many of you have heard me describe how our participation in the being of the Christ will develop as earthly human evolution progresses. In the portal of initiation, for example, I presented the seer Theodora as one who had learned to see the near future. She sees a time when first a few individuals and then increasing numbers will be able to behold the Christ. At first he will be seen in the etheric world rather than physically and then in the more distant future in still another form. This ability will develop not only through spiritual training but also through the level of earthly evolution that humankind as a whole achieves. At one time it became possible to perceive the Christ in physical form because human beings on the physical plane needed that experience. The Christ impulse would not have taken effect fully, however, if it had not continued to evolve. Now we are approaching a time, and you can take this as a fact, when our higher human forces will behold the Christ. Before the end of the twentieth century, a small number of individuals will truly become like Theodora. Their spiritual eyes will open, and they will experience what happened to Paul outside Damascus as a, quote, untimely, unquote, or premature birth, 1 Corinthians 15.8. Before the end of the twentieth century, Paul's experience will be repeated in a number of people who, like him, will need neither Gospels nor Scriptures to know the Christ, Acts 9, 1-22. Inner experience will tell them of the Christ who appears in the clouds of the etheric world. Christ's appearance to Paul prefigured his return in an etheric guise. Our task here is to emphasize that before the twentieth century ends, the being who incarnated once only in a physical body as Christ Jesus at the beginning of the Christian era will reappear in an etheric garment, just as he appeared to Paul. This reappearance is inherent in the nature of the Christ event itself. As human beings evolve and acquire ever higher faculties, we will begin to understand the nature of the Christ in all its fullness. No progress would occur, however, if the Christ had to appear again in a physical body. This would make his first appearance pointless, for it would have failed to stimulate the development of higher forces in individual humans. The Christ event resulted in the development of forces through which the Christ himself can be perceived as he works out of the spiritual world. If we understand the historic struggle now taking place, we realize that our task is to alert our contemporaries to the Christ's reappearance, just as the Essene teacher, Jeshu ben Pandira, pointed to the appearance of Christ as the Lion of the tribe of David a designation that indicates the solar force shining from the constellation of Leo. Let me simply suggest that if humankind today were to be blessed by the reincarnation of Jeshu ben Pandira, who was inspired by the great Bodhisattva who would become the Maitreya Buddha, that teacher would consider it his most important task to alert us to the Christ who appears in the clouds of the etheric world.
He would also emphasize that the Christ will not appear in a physical body again. <clears throat> Jeshu ben Pandir was stoned to death approximately 105 years before the Christ's appearance in Palestine. If he were to reincarnate today, he would point out that the Christ can no longer appear on the physical plane, but he, that he must do so in an etheric garment, as he appeared to Paul outside Damascus. This statement would allow us to recognize Jeshu ben Pandera if he were physically present today. Furthermore, the essence of the new Essene message is that the being who will become the Maitreya Buddha will teach us how the Christ will appear in this age. We must be very careful not to misjudge the Essene teachings which will be resurrected in our time. Another sure sign that will allow us to recognize the reincarnation of Jeshu ben Pandera today is that he will not claim to be the Christ. Anyone who says he possesses the power that lived in Jesus of Nazareth is clearly identified by that very claim as a false prophet and cannot be a reincarnation of that forerunner of the Christ. The danger is very great in this regard because people today vacillate between two extremes. On the one hand, we emphatically state our failure to acknowledge the spiritual forces that are active among humankind. This bad habit has become common knowledge, and even the newspapers suggest that modern humanity lacks the ability and strength to acknowledge the appearance of any original spiritual force. It is indeed true that if the world's greatest being were to reincarnate today, our age would prove unreceptive and allow the event to pass without noticing. A second bad habit is equally prevalent, though it is one that our time shares with many others. We undervalue spiritual individualities to the point where we fail to acknowledge them at all, but we also have a vital need to idolize someone. Just look at all the groups with their own messiahs. This tendency has manifested repeatedly throughout the centuries. Maimonides, excuse me, Maimonides, for example, tells of one false messiah who appeared in France around 1087. He attracted many followers before being sentenced to death by secular authorities. In the same work, written in 1172, Maimonides reports that another messianic pretender had appeared 55 years earlier, 1117, in Cordoba, Spain. And around 1127, a false messiah, messiah appeared in Fez, Morocco, and predicted the coming of an even greater prophet. Finally, it is reported that in 1174 in Persia, a prophet appeared who did not claim to be the Christ himself, but pointed to the Christ's coming. The most blatant of these phenomena, one I have mentioned elsewhere, is the appearance of Zabatai Sevi in 1666 in Smyrna. Enough is known about this man who claimed to be a reincarnation of the Christ to permit a detailed study of the life of a false messiah and the effect he had on others. In 1666 the news went out from Smyrna that a new Christ had appeared in the person of Zabatai Sevi. You must not imagine that this was a minor movement. People came from all over Europe, France, Spain, Italy, Poland, Hungary, southern Russia, even from North Africa and Central Asia to meet the new Christ. It was a huge worldwide movement. Anyone who said Zabatai Sevi was not the true Christ would have angered a great number of believers. Our second bad habit, the need to see messiahs appear in earthly incarnation, becomes evident every day perhaps not in Christian countries, but certainly elsewhere. In Christian nations, the scope of such movements is generally more restricted, but they too have their new Christs. 
spiritual scientific knowledge and detailed esoteric insights prevent us from succumbing to either of these errors and allow us to delve into the most profound fact of modern history. The fact that whenever we deepen our spiritual life, we renew the Essene wisdom that once flowed from the Maitreya Buddha and was expressed by Jeshu ben Pandira, who foretold the coming of the Christ in a physical body. To accomplish the renewal of Essene wisdom today, we must choose the living spirit of a new bodhisattva rather than the tradition of the old. Like Jeshu ben Pandira, we must allow ourselves to be inspired by the bodhisattva who become the Maitreya Buddha. The inspiration of this bodhisattva makes us aware of a future when those who develop new forces through renewed Essene wisdom will be blessed and enlivened by the appearance of the Christ in a new etheric guise. Our words are intended to convey the meaning of the bodhisattva who inspires us and who will become the Maitreya Buddha. We speak of the reappearance of the Christ because we recognize it as the truth not because we believe that he will reappear physically as some would have it. We can say without hesitation that we would be equally willing to state any great any other truth. We do not have a preference for Eastern religious doctrines. We live only for the truth, which we express in terms learned from the inspiration of the Bodhisattva himself and from his revelation of the future appearance of the Christ and the form he will assume. The end of Lecture 10 given in Bern, September 10, 1910.